Welcome to the podcast of the fabulous Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Michael Gordon, and I'm proud to serve as the 95th president of the greatest Rotary Club in the world. Our club serves our local and international community through a variety of projects, but our main focus is on youth literacy. If you're ever in town for either business or pleasure, we invite you to join us at one of our weekly lunches. More information about meeting time and location can be found at lasvegasrotary.com. Now, sit back and enjoy this week's speaker. Sidra has done such a good job of bringing us uh, the most diverse speakers thus far this year. And thanks to Captain Kirk Holmes, uh, each presentation is now, and he thinks between six or eight of our speakers have already been uh, uh, put into podcast. Today it is my honor to introduce my very long friend, uh, Dr. Michael Green. He is so much more than an associate professor. He eats, sleeps, and loves history. If you review the courses that he teaches at UNLV, he challenges his students to find the meaning of history in their own lives. The practice of uh, keeping official documents has been going on ever since man began to walk. The new club roster, by the way, is full of our rich 95-year history. We love our story. We take pride in our story. And as Rotarians, we live our story. It is my honor to introduce, and you're always going to be Nevada's archivist, Dr. Michael Green. Thank you. Ah, hello. There. Thank you and good afternoon. And I've already been told the most important thing, how long to be up here. That's always more important, ultimately. Uh, and I wanted to uh, thank Rotary for its commitment to history. I was looking at the list of past presidents, and of course uh, these are names when I teach Las Vegas history, most of them come up. But it was Dr. Harold Boyer who started the oral history program at UNLV and started it with the oral histories of Rotarians. And now Clay T. White runs that program and students run out and bug people and some of you need to be bugged. So don't be surprised if you are. Uh, I was also noticing uh, your commitment to schools like Will Beckley and I've, all of the work you've done in education and I was thinking of the role Rotary plays and usually when you're doing history you don't get to be personal. Now some of you go I'm sure to the Vegas Valley Book Festival each October which this year is changing its name to the Las Vegas Book Festival so we're ignoring part of the valley which is okay. Uh, they'll get over it. But I was asked to contribute to a book about history and a personal role I played or something I saw, which I did. Now, I am going to say you have to come to the Clark County Library, I think it's the night of October 19th, or buy the book, which would be nice. Uh, I do not get a cut of it, so I can plug it and uh, explain my little story. And what I don't get to mention in the story is the role the Rotary Club played in it. So I always tell my Rotary story which is that when I was a senior at Rancho High School, is Rancho in the house? No. Is there anyone here from Las Vegas High School? Good. Uh, 
I, I'm involved in historic preservation and we're concerned about the buildings at Las Vegas High School and uh, the board I'm on includes Richard Bryan, the former senator who's an alumnus, and he was saying how concerned he is and I said I went to Rancho, we were trying to knock down Vegas for years. But at any rate, I was uh, ordered by a teacher to enter a speech contest in my senior year and wound up before this Rotary Club for the local competition and then ended up winning the District 530 competition. So there was a Rotarian named Bob Brown for whom the Rotary Club was a religious experience. Now there have been two Bob Browns who published newspapers here and the previous one was the one I worked for and he came to this Rotary meeting and came up to me and I had talked about the four-way test which I recited without looking at it because I had to do that. Thank you. you. You have a past president, John Smith, who used to run Nevada School of the Arts, and I had a friend who worked there. And I walked in one day, and I saw the sign. I said, oh, the rotary four-way test. My friend looked at it. I thought it was from the Bible. <laughs> and I said, well, to John, it probably is, uh, a true Rotarian. Anyway, so Bob Brown heard my speech, which was about how you apply this to journalism and came up to me and ended up hiring me as a reporter at the Valley Times, and it changed my life. And I ended up becoming a history professor in part because the newspaper went bankrupt. And I thought, ah, oh, colleges and universities don't go bankrupt. <laughs> but, so at any rate, uh, I owe a great deal to the Rotary Club, but it also got me thinking about the schools I'd attended and Walter Bracken Elementary, named for one of the early leaders of Las Vegas who was part of the Las Vegas Land and Water Company, and how we learn history and how we don't always know it at the time. Walter Bracken, as the agent of the LVL&W, used to have people come in, suppose Bob Fisher wanted to put a fire hydrant in front of his house. He'd go in to see Bracken and say, can I put a fire hydrant in front of my house? And Bracken would say, well, I need to think about it. I'll get back to you. Wait until Bob had left and then get on the phone to L.A. and say, is it okay if Bob Fisher puts a fire hydrant in front of his house? Because that's where the corporate headquarters were. And their response would be, yes, no, or who cares? And the next day, Bob would come back, and Bracken would tell him his decision. And Bob and Las Vegas would be convinced Walter had made the decision. But the fact is, in later years, he did run it, and he did get that choice. And he lived in the heart of town, a typical residential area we all live in today, Fremont near 5th. And it speaks to Walter Bracken's power that Fremont Street was not paved until he'd lived there for 20 years. So the L.A. office wouldn't go along. And then I was uh, at a junior high school named for your 1935-36 president, Dr. Roy Martin. And Dr. Martin was the second doctor in Las Vegas after Hallie Hewitson, who also has a school name for him. And the Brown family, as in Judge Burt and before him his father Milan, his grandfather, Milan, all have been active in politics and law here forever. And it speaks to the vision of Rotarians that in the early 30s, Dr. Martin got up and said, all Las Vegas needs is a first-class hotel and we'll be all right. And everybody said, yeah, there's going to be a first-class hotel here. Right, yeah, sure. So uh, Dr. Martin was ahead of things. Now, I did go to Rancho, and I love to tell my government story. I was going to Rancho and my government teacher, Phil Cook, who had gone to Las Vegas High School but got over it, was, uh, got me even more interested in history than I had been. Well, he is the one who got me into the Rotary speech. Well, 
Rancho High School, when it was built, was the third high school in the valley after Basic and Las Vegas, not in that order. And the city of North Las Vegas got very upset that Rancho was on the line between Las Vegas and North Las Vegas and not in North Las Vegas and wanted it to be. So the city of North Las Vegas went to the legislature and got them to move the boundary so it included the office for Rancho High School so that it would say Rancho High School, North Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, inevitably, the building was going to collapse. I graduated in 82, and it was collapsing. And another 15, 20 years later, they finally took it down. And very wisely, they put the new building on the football field and then reversed it and made the football field where the old Rancho building had been. So the office moved. And the city of North Las Vegas does not seem to know to this day that it lost Rancho or that it ever had it. But I, I am now part of another institution of higher learning, and I did want to spend a few minutes on that, not because we have UNLV people here, though that's a good reason, and uh, we'll all be running to the State of the University address later today, but this is UNLV's 60th anniversary. And it's worth remembering how a community comes together to create something good. Because we did not have higher education down here until 1951. The original institution of higher learning in Nevada opened in Elko in 1874 with six students. Now, you may want to joke about UNLV's football team, but I can tell you their football team was awful. <laughs> we like to say, do we have a defensive line? They had six players. They didn't even have a defensive line. Lousy dorms, too. They finally moved it a few years later to Reno and named the first building Morrill Hall because Justin Morrill had been responsible for the legislation that allowed colleges and universities to be set up as land-grant institutions. But that was it until both BYU and USC were threatening to open a college here. And in turn, the population of Las Vegas had grown to a stunning 25,000 by 1950. And people thought it was about time we got some sort of academic institution here. So finally, the legislature in 1951 approved the Southern Regional Division, and the university sent a young English professor named James Dickinson to Las Vegas to start the school. And he wound up offering classes at Las Vegas High School, and the classrooms and offices were in the theater wing. So every time Vegas put on the school play, they had to cancel classes because there was no space available. And I heard the reference to uh, the Rotary member who was in Florida. My best friend from graduate school teaches at the University of Central Florida. They cancel classes for two weeks, which is, to be fair, a student's dream come true. And uh, he said, you know, I, I was amazed we canceled classes for two weeks because of the hurricane. I said, oh, at UNLV, we used to have different problems. Yeah. Uh, the theater department at Vegas High took precedence. And we consider it the 60th anniversary of UNLV because that is when UNLV's first building opened in 1957, and it was later named for Maud Frazier, who had been the superintendent of schools in Las Vegas and, as a member of the assembly, had pushed for the legislation and the funding. Now, at the same time, Maud couldn't do it all, although Maud could do almost everything. And so, in fact... Southern Nevadans were told, well, if you want to come up with the money for the land for the university, you have to raise part of it. Well, in this past year, the medical school getting started and President Jessup having to find a donor who remains anonymous who would come up with money for 
our portion for the medical school, certain traditions continue. The state can't fund everything. What they did was the porch light campaign. And students from high school would go door to door, and if your porch light was on, it meant you knew they were coming. And, and I have the funny feeling that half of them ended up getting candy because people thought it was Halloween. But that was the beginning of UNLV. And one of the key people in getting this started, in addition to Maude Frazier, was a former Rotary Club president here, Archie Grant, whose name is on Grant Hall, and that is now the oldest building on the UNLV campus. Frazier Hall was not able to survive a combination of money and asbestos. So UNLV is celebrating its 60th anniversary, and I got to speak about it to UNLV Creates, which is an event that begins the semester where we had about 6,000 students and their families, 6,000 people in the Thomas and Mac, and it occurred to me that UNLV's student population was about 6,000 in the mid-70s, and when I entered in 1982, it was 9,000, and we did not have UNLV Creates, and now there are 30,000, which is a tribute to the people in this club throughout Las Vegas who have helped it grow. It also is a commentary that on my first day at UNLV 35 years ago, I got a parking ticket <laughs> because there was no parking. And 35 years and three times as many students later, there's still no parking. <laughs> this, I think, is probably the most significant problem facing the university. At least I feel that way when I try to park. So Rotary has done a lot for me, done a lot for the community, done a lot for education. And it uh, was kind of warming the cockles of my cynical historian heart to see the attention to Beckley and to Bracken, my old alma mater, and the attention you are paying to the history of the community, which continues next week when my friend Mark Hall Patton will be here and you will have to ask him about being recognized in Europe as a star of Pawn Stars. <laughs> I was given one chance at Pawn Stars and it was about something I knew nothing about and I was smart enough to say, I don't know anything about it. And so they went to somebody else, which probably blew my chance for a party at Chumley's house. <laughs> which as I think about news developments probably was a good thing. So what I want to do is leave a few minutes for questions about anything. You can play stump the professor. And the sergeant at arms is headed wherever you're headed is where, okay, we have there and there, so you two are gonna to get to ask questions. We know that. You never mess with the sergeant at arms. He's a sergeant and he has arms. You, never you may not be able to comment on this, but in the line of history repeating himself, itself, I understand uh, and some decently reliable authority that uh, UNLV Medical School came here with the threat that either Cleveland Clinic or UCLA would be more than happy to work with UNLV if the state didn't want to. I, I have heard rumors to that effect, and there are certain things in life where you never know. I'm going to tell you a dirty secret. Two to three years ago, somebody came to me and said, can you read a paper that we have written? Okay, what was it for? To look at the history of sports betting because we were gonna build a stadium and bring the Oakland Raiders here. <laughs> to which I said, <laughs> Rah! 
but I read it and I realized, gee, something could be happening. So behind the scenes, strange things happen. I would not be surprised if UCLA and or the Cleveland Clinic might have had something to do with that. And this is a tribute to what the community can do, that there used to be a joke in Las Vegas that we don't get to tell anymore. If you live in Las Vegas and are sick, where do you go? The airport. Yeah. So um, we're doing a little better. By the way, Pat McCarran's son was a doctor. Hit Mark Hall Patton with that one. Uh, you touched lightly upon the fact that land that UNLV acquired uh, was a problem. We had to make contributions. And we have the son of Perry Thomas, who's one of our members. Yes. Tommy Thomas, you didn't touch upon that. And, of course, that's an important part of UNLV's growth. If, if I had tried to list everything Perry Thomas and the Thomas family have done, we would be here for a year at least. So, uh, Mr. Thomas, thank you. In defense to the graduates of Las Vegas High School, the two that come to mind immediately who aren't here today, Dr. Jim Jones and another fine, he's a dentist, and another fine member, an attorney, Ty Hilbrecht. Yes. Any others? I can't, right off the top of my head, I can't think of any, but. You know, I, I have to pick on Vegas High because they always beat Rancho on the football field, but we beat them in the parking lot. We've got to get back to you, so we'll get him back to you. Hi. Uh, I just moved to town, but out of curiosity, what was the very first, if you know this, the very first casino? I hear that's big business here. What was the very first casino in, the, in Las Vegas? There, there's a rumor to that effect. So, legal? <laughs> Technically, the first legal one was the Northern Club which was at 15 Fremont Street, and the Golden Gate has just eaten the area. And since the Golden Gate was originally the Hotel Nevada, which was built in 1906, I don't get too upset about that one. Uh, but the Northern Club had the first license, and the family who owned it was the Stockers. And Mame, or Mamie, Stocker, was the licensed operator. So you have a woman operating a casino, which was unusual. And the rumbling has been that the... Stocker family, the boys worked for the railroad, and the railroad did not want their people being involved in the casino industry, so she was the front woman, supposedly. Uh, that said, uh, my favorite old casino was the Paradise <laughs> on Highway 91, uh, which was owned by a guy named John Detra, and his son Frank later went to the State Museum with his father's stuff, and it included a pocket watch inscribed to his daddy from his lifelong good friend Alphonse Capone. <laughs> so uh, there, there have been a few stories here. But uh, yet the Northern Club is considered the first because of the licensing. Illegal gambling was going on here, especially on Block 16, First Street between Stewart and Ogden, which was the only spot where alcohol had been legal until Prohibition, at which time, because of Prohibition, everyone in Las Vegas stopped drinking. 
By the way, a word for the Rotary Club's more interesting history. Fred Hess, your fifth president, was the mayor at the time and was arrested for bootlegging. Uh, I mention this in part because we had another mayor, Oscar Goodman, who is still depressed because I told him that he thinks he's the first to run around with gin as mayor. Uh-uh. Yes, sir. Dr. Green, uh, I immigrated to Las Vegas when I was 12 years old in 1957. Went through all the schools here. Had to go to, oh, I didn't have to go to UNLV. I wanted to. But I worked for the Las Vegas Sun and Hank Greenspun. And I'm happy to thank him for giving me a job that I could work nights to get a double alum with UNLV. What was its first name before NSU? It was University of Nevada Southern Regional Division. All that. And then they made it NSU, Nevada Southern University. And then eventually University of Nevada, Reno, and University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Now, since I have friends in Reno, I don't want to be too unkind here. But every time it's referred to as University of Nevada, my teeth spin around in my head. <laughs> and I do not have false teeth. Uh, so there's an attachment there. And it, it's kind of interesting also to think about Hank Greenspun uh, publishing a newspaper, giving a kid a job, and he's working his way through school. So put her there. <laughs> Dr. Green. Yes. Um, years ago, we had in our programming committee opportunities to speak to some of the older members, the founding members of our community, including Perry Thomas. Fascinating when they came up and talked. I want to personally thank you for bringing that enthusiasm and that history perspective back to the club. We've, I've missed it, and this has been fascinating. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I, I appreciate it, and I, I have to say, while I, yes, do appreciate it and I'm glad to do that, I'd rather that Perry Thomas were still here to tell some stories. And I wish Jerry Mack were here to provide rebuttal. Uh, <laughs> I'm allowed to say that, I hope. Okay. I have a question. So um, we're trying to highlight our 95th birthday. Yes. So in today's wheel, we said our club started, met at the chocolate shop, and our first president was Les Saunders. Do you have any info on, on those two items? You know, it's interesting. I don't. And the, here is something that can help you. If you go to the almighty internet, he'll show you how to get there. Uh, the Las Vegas age has been digitized up to 1924. And Pop Squires, who owned the age, also was part of the Rotary Club. And if you want to do a search for folks like Les Saunders, that's a good place to look, as well as the chocolate shop. Uh, the other thing I'd mention is that the State Museum, next to the Springs Preserve, has indexed the age up to 1940 and has the RJ index from around 30 to 70. So there, you can find a lot of old Rotarians hopping around there. Yes. <clears throat> Brian Greenspun used to invite his father to talk to us at the, at the uh, Rotary Club when we were at the DI. And we had a dais up there on the stage, and he would do his presentation. And within a few minutes after him talking, he got booted off because he got into a fight with everybody. He, he, 
He was the most controversial individual ever. Well, uh, I, I can say that Hank Greenspun could have started a fight alone in a room. <laughs> and I, I'm going to tell a story in honor of Tom Thomas. So Ruthie Deskin, who worked for Hank for a thousand years, told me this story. That one time the IRS came to see Hank. Hank was always fighting the IRS. And he said, and they said, you need to give us 50000 or we shut you down on Monday. And it was Friday. And she said, Hank's pacing around the office. How am I going to find 50000 How am I going to find 50000 He stops and says, I've got it! I went to Perry Thomas and Jerry Mack for a $100,000 loan, and they only gave me 50000 <laughs> They owe me $50,000. And he went to the bank, and he got it. And then Ruthie looked at me and just said, how are you going to deal with that? That about covers it. Uh, but Hank, Hank could get in a fight. Steve. Can you tell us about Bugsy Siegel's involvement in the Flamingo Hotel? No. Uh, th this is one of those great Las Vegas stories, because if you saw the movie in which Siegel played Warren Beatty, Uh, I wish to state for the record that I think she was a year uh, behind Deb. My wife was at San Francisco State in the theater department, and Annette Benning was a theater major there. So I say I outdid Warren once. So anyway, Siegel had come here in 1941, and he came here to get involved in race wire results. That was the real reason he came here. And he ended up trying to buy the El Rancho Vegas, and Thomas Hull, who owned it, said, the people of Las Vegas have been too good to me for me to sell it to Bugsy Siegel. And Thomas Hall lived to tell about it, which I find incredible. And then Siegel got into the El Cortez, which was connected through Meyer Lansky. Now, did he have the idea for the Flamingo? In the movie, he has, and I say this with no disrespect to any religion, the Brigham Young moment, where he stands in the middle of the desert and says, this is the place. No, that isn't what happened. But... There is one theory that he had the idea. The other is that Billy Wilkerson, who owned the Hollywood Reporter newspaper and Ciro's restaurant, started it, and that Siegel then took it over. There's also a theory that Siegel had the idea and Wilkerson was the front man. Whatever happened, in the end, Wilkerson was building it, ran out of money, Siegel took it over, and it opened the night of December 26, 1946. And for what it is worth, one of the acts that night is still alive. Rosemarie. She was part of the first showroom act. And the place died because it was a week nobody would come here. So they had to close the place for a while, reopened it, and Siegel was starting to turn the corner on profits, but he had gone deep in the hole for the $6 million it took to build it, to which I think Steve Wynn would say, how'd he do that? Uh, and, of course, Mr. Siegel then became the victim of the first hostile takeover. <laughs> One more. So, as a, as a historian, you've seen the canvas of Las Vegas be shaped. Do you have any predictions for the future of what Vegas is to become? Oh, if, if uh, I, I always say that if I knew that, I wouldn't be in history. <laughs> but, but, you know... It's amazing to think about what's coming and then to try to figure out what it'll mean. For example, I never thought we would get a major professional sports franchise, and now we have two, if you think football and hockey, and okay, so soccer. 
I tend to think the big, the big four were always baseball, football, basketball, hockey. Soccer is one, and we're getting it. However, we had the Las Vegas Quicksilvers of the NASL in the 1970s. Woo-woo! Um, 13 people regularly went to Sam Boyd Stadium to see them. Uh, I think the Raiders and the Golden Knights will do better. Uh, and, yeah. And, of course, we, we have these other things going. But here's the reason I find the future so much harder to predict. So we're going to get this stadium. How are we going to get there? Uh, I had seen an artist's rendering that did not have a single exit from the parking lot. And I thought, my God, it's Dodger Stadium all over. You know. So what is the effect going to be on public transportation? So the one little thing like that, okay, then there's public transportation. Then UNLV is, is involved in this stadium. So the football team has had its hard times and its good times. This is going to help the UNLV football team. Then you look at that and say, well, is it going to affect other professional sports? Does it spread into Las Vegas? The, the hockey team is going to practice in Summerlin. What does that mean to Summerlin? So I think we're going to see a continuing revival, but I don't think we're going to see the recovery and the revival as much on the strip or being driven by the strip in terms of construction of new properties. And the other thing that really worries me is that we are going to be silly enough to have another housing bubble because we are headed in that direction. And uh, we, we are in danger from that. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that Governor Sandoval apparently is going to, uh, when he leaves office, start doing a magic show on the Strip. Uh, I do not think I am offending anybody when I say a Republican governor and Republican legislature that pass a tax increase, there must have been some pixie dust. Well, the reasons for it, whether you're for it or against it, involve education. And we are clearly more committed to education and to supporting education than we have been. And then, of course, what happens? We get the information about the school district's problem. So it's always going to be a bumpy ride. And it's partly because growth will continue, new people will come in, and new ideas from outside improve us. They help us. But it also means that then we try to imitate other places, or some of the people who come in, no one in this room, I'm happy to say, will say, well, gee, I'm from Ashtabula. I don't really need to pay attention to Las Vegas. And the important thing is for us to get out there and make sure our newcomers are interested and aware. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hold on. Hold on. i got to give you a... I would like to present you with our Share What You Can Award, where a meal will be presented to a homeless vet in your name. So pause and smile. Thank you. Thank you. What I really want is the bell. Thank you. So like I always say, Rotary is like tennis. The one who serves best usually wins. Now go forth and make a difference. Thank you for joining us for another wonderful meeting of the Rotary Club of Las Vegas. If you're interested in membership or want to know more about our upcoming projects and speakers, please visit lasvegasrotary.com for more information. Now go forth and make a difference. <laughs>